The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Franklin, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Our scripture reading today is from Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Amy, for reading that passage for us this morning. We're in this new sermon series on Advent where we're going to be working our way through this description of Christ as our wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, and prince of peace. And, uh, and so we're going to start that today by looking at the, the way God has responded to the darkness, uh, our wonderful counselor. So this season of Advent that we're entering into is one where historically, as I mentioned at the beginning of the service, historically is a season that is that it contains lament. Uh, it's a season of repentance. We're acknowledging our need for the birth of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And when I think about this year that we've had, it's been a tough year. Uh, there's been a lot of things that have happened uh, in our church, in our city, in our world, in our country, uh, that have been heavy. A lot of tragedy, a lot of tragedy uh, that's touched this room. And, and so we come into this season of, of Advent where it feels like all of the kind of the commercial voices in the world are trying to really just sort of distract us from the gravity of the year that we've had and say there's nothing to see there. Just, just, just laugh at this, you know, this, this joke over here, or, or, or just pretend like everything is just a Hallmark movie, you know? You've seen those, right? Hallmark movies? Just watch one and you've got it. Um, but we come into the season of Advent, and even the word carries a lot of sobriety and gravity to it, because the word Advent means in Latin, coming to, or arrival. And we may say, well, what's, got, what's the gravity in, in the concept of arrival? Well, what we're talking about is Emmanuel. We're talking about God with us. So we're talking about God arriving. We're talking about the second person of the Trinity taking on flesh and living among us for a purpose. And that purpose is to lay down that life for us. And so during the season of Advent, we, we remember and we celebrate, we celebrate God coming to us in the flesh in two primary ways. We remember his first coming and then we anticipate his return. We live between two Advents, between the first coming of Jesus and the second. 
And so when we're remembering the first, what we're remembering is a moment in history, an event, something that happened, not just a tradition that started a long time ago or a philosophy that was hatched a long time ago, but we're, remem- we're remembering a birth, we're remembering the birth of our Savior who stepped out of eternity and into time, took on flesh, lived among us, offered up his life in our place, died for our sins, and then rose from the grave. And because that's what we're remembering has happened, it is at the same time a very joyous season and also a very sober one because the birth of Jesus is about more than just a visit from a friend, right? And it's about more than a season where we picture our Lord and Savior as a tiny baby. We don't just celebrate that he came. We celebrate why he came. And so that's sobering. And then we don't just remember, but we anticipate. We anticipate his coming return. We talked about this a fair amount last week, where even in our creeds, we acknowledge that he is coming back. And so after Jesus finished the work that he had come to do, he promised that he would come again to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end, right? And so he came to judge the living and the dead and to establish this everlasting kingdom where he would be king for all eternity, where he would be fulfilling to the nth degree the language that we have here in the text that we read, that he would be our, everla- our wonderful counselor, mighty God, and everlasting father, a description of a king who would never stop being king. And so during this season, we worship the living Savior who came once in the flesh to offer himself for us and will come again to make all things new. We live between these two advents, between Jesus' birth at Christmas and his promised return. And so we come to a passage like this in Isaiah, which is a classic Christmas passage. It's a classic passage that we look at and see the prophecy of the birth of Jesus and the way it would be, the way the Savior would come that a child would be born, a son would be given. And then there's this description of him, and it's this powerful declaration of hope in a book from the prophet Isaiah that up to this point has not been filled with hope. It's been filled with warning and dread and catastrophe and problems. But then here, he turns. And I actually want to back up and read verses 2 through 5 as well, to just kind of look at the declaration of hope here. Because Isaiah says this, he says, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. There's been this darkness over over a nation, over a people. We know a little something about that, a darkness over a city, over communities, tragedy. And he said, the people who've walked in this darkness have seen a great light. And those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them, has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder and the rod of his oppressor you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult 
And every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us, a child is born. (coughs) To us, a son is given. So far in the book of Isaiah, God's people have been looking at the road ahead and all they're seeing is a hard road. It's a hard road. And they're suffering. Maybe you're suffering. And here the prophet turns to these words of hope. And as hard as it can be to see hope sometimes, Isaiah sees it. And he sees it in God. He sees it in who God is and who God will be. What God has done, has, he has done. What's been happening in the past is, is done. But what's coming is this glorious reversal of things. This darkness is going to lift. It's a glorious reversal. And Isaiah says, look, what's happening right now is concentrated in this moment. We're in a moment and we're experiencing it. We're feeling it, all the things that are happening. But it's happening here in this place, in this point in time. And God's people feel like they're just in a chokehold and rescue seems impossible and they can't see any light on the horizon. And they're stuck, but it's all about to break. It's all about to break loose. And what is going to mark that glorious reversal of things? What will cause so great of a joy? In verses 4 through 6, he gives some reasons. He says, well, there's going to be release from oppression. God is going to break the yoke of our burden, the staff that's on our shoulder, the rod of our oppressor. He's going to break them all. They will be no more. And then in verse 5, and there will be an end to war. No more war. Every boot of the warrior and every bloodstained garment is just going to be burned as fuel for a fire. There won't be anymore. Imagine a day. Imagine a day when no one will ever fight again. For you who are weary and exhausted in heart, you're tired of fighting. Everything's a fight. And that will end and peace will reign over all creation, without and within. And then in verse 6, there will be the birth of a perfect everlasting ruler, a king, who will, be, who will come and he will, the government will be on his shoulders and he will never stop being king and he will reign with perfection and he will be God himself. A reunification of a fractured world is going to occur under this perfect ruler and the language that he uses here can only refer to God himself in the flesh. He's saying God himself is gonna come down and be the king and he's gonna be the king forever and every decision he's gonna make is gonna be perfect. Every, everything he tries to do he will accomplish because there will be no limit to his power He will be all wise and he will usher in peace. That will be what he will bring for us. He will be our wonderful counselor, miraculously perfect in his wisdom. And he will lead and work on our behalf always and perfectly. Our mighty God, so he won't be an emissary sent from God, but God himself and nothing less than that. Our everlasting father, this inheritance that will never be in jeopardy, Because our loving protector and king cannot die. No one can overthrow him. There's nothing fragile about him. He has us. He'll hold us. 
and then Prince of Peace. His rulings will be just and they will bring peace. And of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. It will just be a peace that remains forever and ever and ever and is never threatened and never jeopardized. And so with justice and righteousness, he will reign forever. And so you start to get this picture of the magnificence of this. And the book of Isaiah has already been filled with these pictures of magnificence, of the power of God that have made Isaiah shrink back and say, woe to me, because I'm a man of unclean lips and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. When God calls him, he sees the throne room of God and it's filled with this smoke and these angels and they're covering their face. They're covering their feet and they're flying and they're singing about the glory of God and the majesty. And then you have these proclamations of the end of war and the end of oppression and the birth of a perfect ruler and you see the magnificence and the grandeur and you see the foundations of the world shake and you say, how? How will he do it? Because we need it. How will he bring such a mighty and powerful ruler? How will such wisdom and compassion grace this earth? How can such magnificence come to be? And God in his infinite wisdom does what he does time and time and time again. As he takes the images and the presumptions of what we assume must be the way and flips them upside down. Imagine it. I want you to imagine with me. Imagine. Picture Picture her. Lips pursed as she sucks in short breaths of air. Her belly went tight as a drum and she looked worried, unsure. This was unfamiliar, like her mind and her body were strangers to one another. And then as quickly as it rose, the pain subsided and Joseph was at her side. And he was willing and he was eager to do whatever he could, but he didn't know what to do. And there didn't seem to be much for him to do, and so he made room and he kept her warm and he talked to her. And they weren't children anymore, but they weren't quite grown-ups either. They were somewhere between who they used to be and who they were becoming. And there was no place in the world that Joseph wanted to be more than right there beside her. And she was beautiful. Minutes later, the pain stabs at her again. Only this time it's worse. And then it stabs at her again. And then again. And Joseph is busying himself. There's no one to coach them. There's no one to tell them that everything is going to be okay. And so he holds her and he prays. And I wonder, did they think about the angels? who had visited them in their dreams and told them this was coming and explained the miracle of the moment they find themselves in? Did they think of Adam and Eve taking the forbidden fruit 
and how one of the consequences of that act of rebellion was now shooting through Mary's body from head to toe every three minutes now. The pain. The pain of childbirth. And she groaned and she fought for every breath and she pushed. And Joseph wiped her brow and he told her he loved her. He loved her. He loved her. And she continued to push and to breathe and to strain until eventually, as if cresting a ridge, her labor gives way to delivery. And her groaning gave way to the cries and the coos of little lungs drawing in the breath of earth for the first time. And Joseph lays the baby on Mary's chest. And to the wonder of the helpless man and the relief of the exhausted woman, they beheld him, who though he was the son of God, was every bit a fragile, tiny baby. And the child was nothing like Mary imagined not because he looked different from other babies, but because he was a newborn. And it was hard to find the distinctive features in his face. And she searched his eyes to see if he had the eyes of God. But one thing was certain, he was beautiful. She loved everything about him. His little nose, his wisps of dark hair. His perfect little fingers and toes. The sound of his first cry was the loveliest tune that she had ever heard. It was as if this baby had gone from being her burden to being her physician, healing the toll that her pregnancy had taken on her body simply by lying across her breast and absorbing her warmth. Together they cleaned him and they wrapped his little arms and legs in cloth to keep him warm. And when they laid him in a manger, they finally exhaled and they gave him the name, Jesus. And they both remembered why. And it was because the angel told them his name will be Jesus which means the Lord is salvation. Here. Here is the Savior. A child has been born. A son has been given. And this boy, the angel told them, would be the heir to David's throne and the government would be on his shoulders and he would be their wonderful counselor and their mighty God and their everlasting father and their prince of peace. And it wasn't just that the boy would lead God's people to salvation. It's that he would accomplish it. And he would do that through suffering. But the incarnation of the Savior of the world could have come to pass in any number of ways. 
could have been the parting of clouds and a chariot descending with the second person of the Trinity robed in glory and regalia, trumpets sounding, hosts of angels at his side. God in his infinite wisdom to a fragile, broken, hurting world chose him to come in a fragile, hurting, and broken way. This couple, this night, this shelter. And he did it for you. He did it for you. And it's cause for joy. Why is this cause for joy? Because God is saying to us in the birth of our Savior, I see the chaos. He sees the chaos and he goes before us. And though his judgment upends rituals of our pretending, and though it can lead us to places of desperation, this glorious reversal is coming and nothing can stop it. Nothing will be able to stop it. How can we be sure of this? How can we be sure that nothing will stop this salvation that the Lord means to bring to pass? How do we know that nothing will stop it? The reason we know is because of what the last line of this text tells us. It says the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. It isn't that God is throwing something against the wall, a half-considered plan, because things kind of got out of control and he was like, I should probably fix that. No. A child will be born, a son will be given, and the reason is because God will be zealous to do it this way. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. God's purpose and his will, his glorious reversal, is something that will happen, and we know it will happen because God wants it to happen. He's zealous for it to happen. Our hope in this life is not that circumstances will get better. That's not our hope. Our hope is not that people will start looking at each other and saying, come on, folks, we can do better. That's not what's going to happen either. What's going to happen, and our hope is that God will redeem and God will restore. Why? Because he is zealous to redeem and he is zealous to restore. What does he want? He wants to do that. He wants to redeem and restore. What proof do we have that he's zealous to do this? A child has been born. Not just any child. His son. His son has been born. Our wonderful wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace, Jesus Christ, the savior of the world, born in Bethlehem, the second person of the Trinity, the son of God incarnate. Jesus came to redeem and restore in perfect wisdom as God himself, establishing an everlasting kingdom of eternal peace through his life and his death and his resurrection. That will be the future for every follower of Jesus Christ forever. And the zeal of the Lord will be the reason why that doesn't fold. It's because it will be his to preserve. And you and I were made for that. We were made for him more than we were made for anything else. We were called to follow him as we navigate this life, looking toward, anticipating the life to come. That story of the birth of Jesus, there's nothing particularly regal about it. There's no herald in the street announcing the birth of a king. By all appearances, it's a humble 
simple affair. And it's seemingly unconnected to anything else that's going on in Bethlehem that night. Except for the experiences of a few shepherds on the outside of town. They've made the connection. But it wasn't inconsequential. Because there on the edge of Bethlehem, a child was born and a son was given. And the zeal of the Lord Almighty accomplished this. And it was the most significant moment in the history of the world. A son is born, a child is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be born for you. Let's pray. Father, in our minds when we look at the things that plague us as problems, and we imagine the solutions that we'd like to see. We often just want to see opponents and enemies vanquished and the things that vex us just crushed. When you talk about the way that you redeem and restore, it's so gentle and it's so fragile and yet it's so powerful and so mighty. It's this collision of heaven and earth in a In a, in a manger in Bethlehem. And it's you bringing into this world the second person of the Trinity incarnate for the purpose of suffering on our behalf, of taking our sin upon himself, of working into our hearts in our minds and our lives and not just dealing with the external problems that we feel are responsible for most of our woes but for dealing with the internal part of our hearts that want to rebel against you and so father bringing your son into this world through the pains of childbirth fragile outside Lord, you are showing us over and over and over in so many ways that you are relating to the least of us and that you see us. And so we thank you for that. Father, I pray that as we continue to walk through this season of Advent, that it would be for us a mix of sober repentance before you because it was our sin that required the birth of Christ and that it would be a season of incredible joy for us as we see the way that you have expressed your affection and love for us in the way that you have gone about redeeming and restoring us by sparing not your son, but giving him for us all. And so, Lord, we thank you for your mercy and your kindness. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen.